Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the debate Understanding Antisemitism Today from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2018 at the Barbican in London. The debate is introduced by the chair, Jacob Faraday. Good morning, everyone. Congratulations on getting out of bed this early on a Sunday morning and making it to this discussion on understanding antisemitism today, a topic that's rarely been out of the news. Just this week, we read that Chelsea Football Club has decided that it's going to send fans accused of anti-Semitism to Auschwitz to look round and learn about um, the history of anti-Semitism there. Just this week, uh, John McDonnell was speaking at an event where Labour journalists and Jewish Labour journalists and Jewish activists were initially banned from attending. And this really forms part of a backdrop where this summer stories about Labour anti-Semitism have rarely been out of the news. Um, naturally, you know, this was hooked on whether the, La- the Labour Party should adopt an internationally um, renowned definition of anti-Semitism, and all the debates been stored in there, but more broadly across Europe, and this is what I'm hoping, as well as discussing, as I'm sure, you know, the relationship between anti-Semitism and the left, I'm sure I'd really like to have a, a more broader discussion about the rise of anti-Semitism throughout Europe. So, you know, in the past two years, two synagogues in Sweden have been burnt. In France, French little school kids have been the victim of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic incidents. In Germany, um, members of one town were told to stop wearing kippers um, because they thought they might be at risk of anti-Semitic abuse. So to discuss this further, um, we have a pretty stellar panel with us. Um, sitting in the white shirt on my far right, we have Dr. Stephen Law, who's a philosopher author and honorary research fellow at Roehampton University. Sitting next to him, we have Richard Angel, who's director of Progress, which is a centre-left group within the Labour Party. Um, Before that, he was a member of the Labour's National Policy Forum. Sitting immediately on my right, we have Melanie Phillips, who's an author, broadcaster, and well-renowned columnist at The Times. Her first novel, The Legacy, has um, just come out fairly recently, and that deals with the kind of the confliction, the con- conflicting tendencies between Jewish identity. Sitting on my immediate left, we have Professor Julian Petley, who's professor of journalism at Brunel University, and he's an editorial board member of the British Journalism Review. And sitting on my far left, we have Brendan O'Neill, who's an editor of Spike. He's a regular contributor to The Sun and The Spectator, and a a long-time speaker here at the Battle of Ideas. So could we welcome our panelists, please? I'm going to ask our panel, in true Battle of Ideas fashion, to speak to around five to seven minutes, then we're going to come straight out to you guys. I realise this is a fairly heated, um, that this can become quite a heated debate, so I'm keen to get you guys in there as soon as possible. But in the meantime, Stephen, would you like to kick us off? Uh, I guess the reason is I'm interested in and have published on the ways in which our bullshit beliefs myths and prejudices uh, can get a grip on public uh, thinking. So how do prejudices uh, regarding women or black people or Jews or whatever it may happen to be, how do those kind of prejudices get started? Well, here's one way. Once uh, it's been suggested that a certain group have some sort of problem, that uh, women have a bad driving problem, for example, or Jews have a greed problem, uh, it's usually not hard to find some examples. After all, inevitably, you know, some women are bad drivers, so you're going to be able to find one or two examples. Some Jewish people are going to be greedy, inevitably. Uh, Once it's suggested that there may be a problem, people very often start to find their own uh, examples, and often they'll notice the most emotionally 
arresting examples and then they'll be able to recite them back at you with ease. So, for example, when the topic of women being bad drivers comes up, you'll probably be presented with some story about a woman who was a really terrible driver and as a result several people died. They'll, 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 they'll hand that to you as evidence. Uh, this pattern of thought is called confirmation bias. It's where we search for only positive instances to confirm what we already suspect is true. And as a result of confirmation bias, people can convince themselves of things that aren't true, such as that you know, women are bad drivers or whatever it may happen to be. <clears throat> In fact, they may become so convinced that if we present them with harder evidence that women are in reality just as good drivers, perhaps better drivers than men, uh, they'll dismiss it out of hand. Uh, they'll insist that it's just obvious that women are bad drivers and that everyone knows that women are bad drivers. And, of course, they will be able to point to lots of examples, often emotive examples, of women being bad drivers. <clears throat> and yet this sort of evidence that women have a bad driving problem is, of course, entirely anecdotal and useless as I'm sure you can all agree. Uh, we, there are some women who are bad drivers, no doubt, there's no denying that, but of course that doesn't remotely justify the conclusion that women have a bad driving problem or that women are worse drivers on average than are men. <clears throat> I'm sure we all recognise that such anecdote-driven patterns of thought are one of the main ways that racial and other prejudices, including anti-Semitism, get a grip on our thinking. So I now want to address... Uh, Labour's anti-Semitism problem, and <clears throat> there are various questions we might, no doubt we will address concerning Labour's anti-Semitism problem, but I want to focus particularly on the idea that Labour has an anti-Semitism problem in the sense that <clears throat> there's more anti-Semitism in Labour or, and or on the left than there is in the general population. <coughs> That's now widely considered to be obvious. Uh, many people just take it for granted that levels of anti-Semitism are higher in Labour or higher on the left than elsewhere. Indeed, many now suppose that anti-Semitism is rampant on the left. For example, this summer, 68 rabbis signed a letter saying, as British rabbis, it is great, with great regret that we find it necessary to write that anti-Semitism within sections of the Labour Party has become so severe and widespread that we must speak out with one Jewish voice. The Jerusalem Post has claimed that, and I quote, Britain's Labour Party has a major problem with rampant anti-Semitism, end of quote. Uh, the New York Post ran a leader that said, Britain's left is melting down over rampant anti-Semitism. This finger-pointing at the left matters. In fact, it may well influence the outcome of the next general election. Labour are increasingly viewed as toxic because of this perpetually repeated allegation that it's now riven uh, with anti-Semitism. So what's the evidence <coughs> regarding anti-Semitism in Labour? Well, for the most part, it consists of a few hundred complaints to the Labour Party about cases of anti-Semitism out of, that is, out of 550,000 people, well over half a million people. That's a fraction of 1% of the membership. And then there are various alleged cases of anti-Semitism, some correct, some spun, uh, that have been featured heavily in the media. And that's more or less it. Uh, that's pretty much all the evidence for Labour having a major anti-Semitism problem. But again, just like the evidence for women being bad drivers, it's entirely anecdotal, cherry-picked evidence. Citing those kind of cases, often very emotive cases, no more supports the allegation that Labour has an anti-Semitism problem 
then it supports the allegation that women have a bad driving problem. Uh, this is not to say that there's no anti-Semitism on, on the left or in Labour. Of course there is. But the suggestion that the left is riddled with anti-Semitism is clearly not justified, at least not on that basis. Uh, drawing the conclusion that Labour have an anti-Semitism problem on that basis would be a classic example of confirmation bias. <clears throat> However, there is plenty of evidence regarding anti-Semitism in Labour and on the left, better quality evidence. Uh, the problem is that almost all of it, possibly all of it, flatly contradicts the claim that there's more anti-Semitism in Labour than there is in other parties. For example, in 2017, the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, a Jewish think tank, conducted an extensive survey looking at anti-Semitism, including on the left, and they concluded, and I quote, anti-Semitism is no more prevalent on the left than in the general population. That's a Jewish think tank's conclusion in 2017. They looked specifically at the left and found that actually people who described themselves as fairly left-wing were actually less anti-Semitic than centre-left people. Uh, a cross-party Home Affairs Select Committee, of which I think you were, Richard, were involved. Is that right? No, OK, well, I'm Richard, OK. Uh, was tasked with looking into levels of anti-Semitism. It concluded, and I quote, there exists no reliable empirical evidence to support the notion that there's a higher prevalence of anti-Semitic attitudes within the Labour Party than any other uh, political party. There are YouGov uh, statistics and data on anti-Semitic attitudes that indicate that anti-Semitic attitudes have actually reduced in Labour under Corbyn. The Chakrabarti inquiry looked into accusations of significant anti-Semitism in Labour and found no significant problem. In 2016, Channel 4 Dispatches programme did a six-month undercover investigation of momentum looking for dirt, including anti-Semitism, and they found none at all after a six-month undercover investigation of momentum. So as far as I can see... All of the available hard evidence not only fails to support the allegation that Labour has an anti-Semitism problem, it directly contradicts that claim. So how has this myth been generated, the myth that Labour is riddled with anti-Semitism? The real story regarding Labour's anti-Semitism problem of rampant anti-Semitism is really the story of how this myth, uh, myth arose and how it came to so dominate the British media for so long, on front page after front page after front page, with such potential significance for the outcome of the next general election. Uh, a recent Birkbeck College and London Media Reform Coalition research project concluded that there has been a persistent subversion of conventional news values on this topic. That has been a major contributor to this misperception. Thanks. Thanks, Stephen. Lots to discuss there. Richard, you were, uh, you know, from Progress, you're well in the Labour Party. Do you want to give us your perspective there? So my name is Richard Angel. I'm the director of Progress with a centre-left Labour pressure group. I've been a Labour Party member uh, since I was 18, uh, joined back in 2002 and done various roles, including be the secretary of the LGBT wing of the party, been a national policy forum and a political officer for one of the affiliated uh, trade unions. I, uh, for a short while, was... Uh, uh, the Secretariat to the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Combat Antisemitism. Its chair, John Mann, um, is a remarkable guy and has done brilliantly on uh, these issues and has had to turn his attention to the antisemitism problems within uh, the, the Labour Party. But um, I'm, I'm not Jewish and I'm the only non-Jewish person to 
formerly be the Secretariat for that group, and it's something I'm very uh, proud of. And uh, Anti-Semitism seems to have found its way into my political activism um, since my time in student politics, where some of the same people seem to uh, re-emerge and now work for the Leader of the Party. The um, anti-Semitism is clearly a problem in Europe uh, uh, and, and America uh, elsewhere. Um, and while politics is indulging the extremes, the extremes is where anti-Semitism festers. Uh, but the vacuum in the centre and the fact that the extremes are being indulged is bringing that politics uh, to the centre. And you just start to look at the right of uh, British politics at the moment. Uh, Vote Leave did a uh, picture the other day with George Soros, a famous uh, well-off Jewish guy, uh, pulling the strings of Tony Blair on the Remain campaign. That is quintessential uh, uh, anti-Semitic trope uh, that is there. The Tories turning a blind eye to Orban, who is a persistent anti-Semite in the way that he is running Hungary, not least his focus on George Soros and others. Um, but you see that um, uh, taking place um, uh, sporadically uh, on the right and in a very uh, pernicious way. I think the Tories uh, have got a particular problem with Islamophobia um, and in many ways it's institutional. Uh, when somebody does something Islamophobic in the Tory party it is broadly um, covered with explaining what aboutery um, and, uh, and somehow that it's acceptable and it doesn't seem to feature with the full force of the disciplinary process of the Conservative Party and that is I think disappointing for all of us that care about a more equal society. The issue on the left is, uh, is on a different scale. And uh, Stephen, I think what you said was appalling whataboutery, to be honest. And I'll go through the issues that have taken place in the, uh, in the Labour Party. The, uh, the reasons for uh, anti-Semitism on the left. First, individuals on the fringe of the movement of uh, showing solidarity with the Palestinian people constrained to anti-Semitic views. Second, there are people who have come to see capitalism and imperialism of the product of conspiracies of small shadowy elites rather than the political, economic, legal and social systems. That is only one step away from the hor horrific myths about Jewish bankers and, uh, and sinister global forces. They're not my words, they're Jeremy Corbyn's. He thinks there is a problem of left anti-Semitism, uh, so much so they had to write the same article twice in both The Observer and The Evening Standard. But what have we seen in the Labour Party uh, and on the left generally? We've seen a growing use of the word Zio, uh, an abbreviation of, the, of Zionist, used against Jewish people, whether they know they are Zionists or not, as if that somehow would matter, in the same way that the P word is used as an abbreviation from people from, Pakistani, uh, from Pakistan, whether people know their ethnic, na national background or not. And it is a vile... Uh, racist epithet that is used time and time again and has been used persistently um, in the Labour Party. Some by Labour councillors, um, a number of them have been suspended, some have been excluded uh, completely, uh, often against Labour Jewish councillors uh, time and again, uh, regardless of their, uh, uh, not use it as if it could be explained in any context um, to do with debates on the Middle East. Most councillors don't have much remit over uh, the Middle East. We've seen out-and-out out Holocaust denial um, on the left. The last local elections, Labour didn't just have one but two candidates who had to be removed as candidates for out-and-out out Holocaust denial on public platforms. What has it come to in the Labour Party when you have a Holocaust denial candidate? You have to ask which one. Was it the Peterborough one or the Tunbridge Wells uh, one? And we have seen uh, analogies with the Nazi regime 
uh, to do with Israel and, and other parts of Jewish life, uh, bankers, conspiracies, etc. What is so pernicious, and why I think what Stephen said was so awful, I'm afraid, is that what is happening is this happens everywhere. There is, this is happening in all parts of politics. But when it is happening on the British left, since there has been a change of establishment in the Labour Party, rather than tackle the anti-Semitism, we go after the person accusing people of anti-Semitism. Right? So let me take you through what happened in Peterborough. There was a guy called Alan Bull who wanted to be a Labour councillor. He put on local Facebook groups a number of claims uh, disputing the facts of the Holocaust, Holocaust denial, illegal in five EU countries, and uh, conspiracies about David Miliband being a Rothschild Zionist, right? A controlling banker, rich Jew, etc., etc. These are both appalling forms of anti-Semitism and racism. He then applied, a complaint was put in by a Jewish member about that. Nothing happened. He then applied to be on the panel of candidates. The evidence was presented to the panel. He was approved and put onto the panel of candidates. He then went to, for two local branches and he was selected at the first of those, despite the fact this evidence was put in front of the committee that were choosing him, and he became a Labour ca candidate. This carried on for a number of months and the leader of the Labour group um, told all the candidates, want to be candidates, uh, that they had to come to a full council meeting to kind of observe what was happening. And at it, two Labour councillors, one of them Muslim, uh, wore T-shirts saying Labour against anti-Semitism, uh, calling out this guy and saying, we do not want to be a councillor alongside this guy who is a vile racist. A complaint was put in against them and it was taken forward and disciplinary procedures started against them, Right? It then found its way into the national Jewish press. All of this stuff was revealed. Alan Ball was suspended. The complaint against these guys five days later was finally uh, withdrawn. And uh, this guy is still suspended and yet to appear before the National Constitutional Committee, the, the body that would kick people out. And uh, we're talking six months later uh, at minimum. What then went on to happen is the, fir the first part of Labour's discipline process that goes to something called the Disputes Committee. A, a wonderful woman called Anne Black, who, if any of you follow Labour politics, she's literally the centre of the Labour Party. She's absolutely in the middle of these things. I'm very quickly, I'm just going to finish this point. Uh, uh, it's right in the middle of these things. She was deposed as the head of it. Jeremy Corbyn's, one of his best friends, uh, Christine Shawcross, was installed as the head of it. She then sent an email saying this was all made up, the claims against this guy. He must not go forward. It must not even appear at the committee, let alone go forward. And in the end, she resigned because she was clearly defending a Holocaust denier uh, going forward. The structure, the power structure of the Labour Party now sides with the anti-Semite over those over those who are Jewish um, and call out anti-Semitism. And this has happened time and time again. Pete Wilsman's vile rant about the letter that you read out very selectively um, was appalling, but not only was he able to stay on the NEC, but the rest of the momentum slate backed him again, voted for him, and then eight days later removed him from the slate and another five days later removed him from their website and are now doing stuff jointly with him. And you just look at the debate on the International uh, Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. This is my last point I'll make. Uh, no, Richard, that was not Richard, about tackling anti-Semitism. That was not about tackling anti-Semitism. That was whether we are minded to tackle anti-Semitism, what we would view as anti-Semitism. And to the very last stage, the leader of the Labour Party was desperate to stop it going through and to put a caveat that basically said you're allowed to be racist in certain circumstances. That is appalling and it cannot stand. Thank you. Thank you.
<coughs> wonderful. So we have disagreement already. This is looking like a good one. But more broadly, we've had a lot of discussion already about you know what's happening on happening within the Labour Party. But we're also getting some more you know sensitive and nuanced stuff coming out here. So we've already had a you know bit of discussion about what is anti-Semitism. You know, can we compare it to Islamophobia? Where do these two different prejudices fit in together? And more broadly, we're here. You know, we've had a bit about old you know anti-Semitic tropes. So while yes, we are a lot of discussion will be about the left and the Labour Party. Let's also bear in mind when it comes to questions, um, what does constitute anti-Semitism? But in the meantime, Melanie, do you want to take it? Thank you. Um, I agree that the core of this crisis for the Labour Party is the way in which it has failed to deal with the egregious anti-Semitism that has emerged. And I just want to look at that in a bit of detail. There is, I think, a genuine and uh, bewildered resistance among Labour Party supporters in general to the very idea that their party could be riddled with anti-Semitism, because to many Labour Party supporters and people on the left, anti-Semitism is identified with the far right. Now, some of these people who have been exposed on in the Labour Party are overtly anti-Semitic. I don't think anybody would seriously deny that references to Jewish bankers uh, controlling uh, policy in the world or world finances is an anti-Semite. Um, but uh, I don't actually jump to the uh, 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 idea that uh, everybody in the Labour Party who expresses these ideas is an anti-Semite. I think this is a terrible trap because some people are ex are. are personally, not ill-disposed towards the Jewish people, but they are expressing a discourse which is in itself anti-Semitic, and they do not realise that or appreciate or acknowledge that. And as a result, they think that the criticism of such such discourse as anti-Semitic represents Jews trying to suppress legitimate criticism of Israel. So I just want to explore a bit uh, that a bit because it's this it's this nexus between anti-Israelism and anti-Semitism, which I think is at the root of the of the bewilderment. Now I would suggest that anti-Israelism is not criticism of Israel. Israel should be criticised just like every other country is criticised. The problem is that the anti-Israelism current in Western uh, left-wing discourse is not criticism. Uh, Anti-Israelism has exactly the same characteristics that make traditional anti-Semitism a unique derangement. Both are based entirely, entirely on obsessive and paranoid falsehoods and malicious distortions. Both single out Israel and the Jews for double standards and treatment afforded to no other nation, people or cause. Both accuse Israel or the Jews of crimes of which they are not only innocent but are in fact the victims. Both dehumanise Israel and the Jewish people. Both impute to Israel or the Jewish people demonic global conspiratorial power and both the treatment of Israel is described as mere criticism, but it isn't criticism. Criticism is rational. This is irrational and malicious demonization and delegitimization of Israel designed to destroy it and to destroy the idea of Zionism. Zionism is considered to be illegitimate. Zionism is merely the right of the Jewish people to self-determination. And this distinction, this anti-Zionism, singles out the Jews alone for the destruction of their nationhood. In my view, the distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is false. And this is what's at the root of what's called the new anti-Semitism. But trying to understand the new anti-Semitism, I would suggest, is a bit like peeling a rotten onion 
Beneath every rancid layer lies a more rancid layer. So let me peel the onion for you. The outer, more visible layer is fairly obvious. The left in general now subscribes to beliefs which were once considered extreme. It has absorbed the Marxist concept that everything has to be understood in terms of political power. The world is divided into the powerful and the powerless. Those with power can never be good. Those without power can never be bad. Those who make money have power over those who don't make money. Those who make money are bad. Those without money are good. Jews make money, therefore Jews are powerful and bad. And as far as Israel is concerned, Israel is seen to have power. Indeed, it has huge military power. But the fact that the Jews are now equipped with that military power solely to defend themselves against annihilation, unfortunately has breathed life into the paranoid delusion that Jews with power are so powerful they pose a threat to everyone else. The next layer of the onion is even more rancid. This is that, as the black joke would have it, that isn't a joke at all, the West will never forgive the Jews for the Holocaust. This is not simply because of the terrible legacy of guilt carried by the West, but because I would suggest jealousy. What is the West so jealous of when it comes to the Holocaust? What it perceives as the Jews' trump card of victimhood. I've lost touch, I've lost count of the number of times I've heard the Jews accused of sucking up all the victimhood in the world and leaving no room for anyone else to be a victim. What on earth does this rubbish claim mean? It can only mean that the enormity of the crime against the Jews was so vast that any victim status claimed by anyone else is rendered minor by comparison and thus devalued. That in itself is absurd and irrational. But why do people want to be considered victims in the first place? And I would suggest that's because it is considered by so, so many to give you a moral free pass. The belief is that you can't be held responsible for your own misdeeds if you are a victim. You cannot be a victimizer yourself. You can never be a racist yourself. You can never be a genocidal psychopath yourself if you are considered a victim. You are considered a victim if you are powerless, if you have no money. And so no one in the developing world can ever be a victimizer, racist, or genocidal psychopath. They can only be the victims of such people. The Palestinian Palestinian Arabs can only ever be their victims, and as such, the Palestinian Arabs and the rest of the developing world get a get-out-of-jail-free get out card for everything, including genocidal mass murder. So every group that does not conform to the left-wing definition of power, deemed to be pale, male, heterosexual, Western, and all the rest of it, claims victim status and that get-out-of-jail-free card. That's what our victim culture is. But Jews can't be victims because, as everyone knows, Jews emerged from the Holocaust to run the financial world, the media, the law, the arts, American foreign policy. So the Jews are seen as all-powerful. Yet they are, in fact, the most persecuted people on earth who are even now sacrificing their children in Israel to defend themselves year in, year out against genocidal fanatics bent on their extermination who are supported by the left in the West and in this country. So how can this not be recognised? I would suggest that our victim culture is innately anti-Jew, but victim culture lies at the very heart of progressive left-wing thinking, and it is inextricably uh, connected with support for Palestinianism. I would suggest that at the heart of Palestinianism is the desire to eradicate the Jews' unique historical connection to the land of Israel. Palestinianism is therefore innately not just anti-Israel but anti-Jew because although not all Jews support the state of Israel, just as not all Jews are um, observant, 
the connection between the people, the religion, and the land is uh, inseparable. And anybody who tries to uh, separate them is basically hitting not just Israel or Jews as people, but Judaism itself. And it's this nexus, this connection between these issues, which is not understood, not acknowledged, not denied, and which lies at the very core of the Labour Party's problem in facing this crisis. I think you've just exhibited hate yourself. Let's let's no. We're going to have a question and answer session at the defend end. That. We have, we're going to have a question and answer. Lots of strained faces in the audience. This is brilliant. This is all what it's about. Okay, be a real shame if you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs. Um, lots to discuss there. You know, it, it's surprising it's taken you know this long to have a bit of um, a discussion about the relationship between Israel and Zionism and anti-Semitism here as well. Because we can't. You know, be, the discussion about the left and anti-Semitism didn't come out of nowhere. Um, a lot of the discussion over the past couple of months has been about whether we can define Zionism or anti-Zionism um, as anti-Semitism. So let's always keep that at the back of the mind as well. But in the meantime, Julian. Thanks. Okay. I'm going to talk about taken for granted uh, anti-Semitism here because I think that's... And I'm also going to take some examples from the right of the political spectrum in this country, not because I don't believe that anti-Semitism exists on the left, it certainly does. But um, after the war, you, of course, you couldn't really be overtly uh, anti-Semitic for, for very obvious reasons. I mean, there were some overtly racist parties like the National Socialist Movement, the Greater Britain Movement, and people like that. But anti-Semitism tended to flourish uh, in a kind of covert and, and, and undercover kind of way. For example, there were publicly unacknowledged quotas for Jews in institutions like private schools and in golf clubs. And, as I'm sure many of you know, there were kind of negative representations of Jews in all sorts of popular literature. I mean, step forward, Agatha Christie, and um, from a previous era, uh, John Buchan as well. And, of course, there were coded remarks in, in everyday discourse, and I certainly heard these myself growing up in the 50s about uh, the chosen race and things like that. Now, much of this is now just passed off as unthinking, but I think what that does is that it merely shows how deeply anti-Semitism has ingrained itself within sections of English society. And I would say, again, on the left and, and the right and in the middle. So I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of, taken from uh, The Telegraph, as it happens, a, a right-wing supporting paper. Um, so that's not to deny that anti-Semitism exists on the left as well. It certainly does. But uh, we've heard a lot about that, so here's something different. So some of you may know this story, but on the 26th of September 2017, the Telegraph ran an article about, I quote, the only three countries on the planet which don't have a central bank owned or controlled by the Rothschild family, unquote. And the campaign against anti-Semitism successfully complained to Ipso about this. The paper apologised and accepted the claim was inaccurate and offensive and said, again I quote, it was a regrettable error arising from momentary carelessness, unquote. I would think that was a, just a stupid use of a website, and believe you me, you probably don't need me to tell you this, the amount of anti-Semitism out there on websites is really quite staggering. Um, 
it comes from the left, it comes from the right, and it comes from what I can, people I regard as completely deranged, but, but there you are. Anyway, the Telegraph didn't really learn anything very much in, in my view, because already on the 8th of February of this year, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to put some flesh on the bones here, it ran an article about George Soros, headlined, Man Who Broke the Bank of England Backing Secret Plot to Thwart Brexit. Now, this was partly excuse me, this was partly written by Nick Timothy, who the former joint of staff to Theresa May, who I don't think is an anti-Semite. Anyway, uh, it described him as, I quote, a billionaire financier, unquote, who, quote, has been accused of organizing rallies against Donald Trump in the US and interfering in the democracies of several European nations, unquote. A further article on the same day adds that, again, quote, he stands accused by many governments around the world of meddling in their internal affairs through the Open Society Foundations, unquote. This is accused of, quote, toppling governments in Georgia and Ukraine. He's been accused of using the OSF to orchestrate an ultra-liberal crusade in Hungary and faced criticism from Poland's ruling Law and Justice Party. Um, anyway, it goes on. Later on, Roger Scruton, Telegraph, talks about George Soros, whose behaviour in Hungary, Albania and the Balkan states has in, been inspired by a visceral hostility to the national idea. Actually, it's inspired by a visceral hostility towards extreme and deeply unpleasant uh, right-wing ideas with not far distant roots in Nazism, in, in my view. But, of course, this discourse also isn't just, isn't just aimed at, at Soros. It's aimed at Goldman Sachs as well. And again, I'd reiterate, this has left-wing and it has right-wing inflections. I'm going to concentrate on the right-wing since we've heard so much about the left. This is uh, Alex Brummer in the, in the Mail on the 9th of February. He says, of course, it's no surprise to discover that Goldman Sachs is linked to the Soros Brexit sabotage operation. Alumni of the finance giant that's valued at 68 billion have muscled their way into positions of power across the world and try to manipulate government policies. I'm just stressing these words because you know they, they, do, they do have very, very uh, anti-Semitic connotations in certain contexts. Um, anyway, it goes on to, to say the bank has been busy speculating against the currencies and debts of weaker economies to make huge profits, oblivious to the social dislocation and human suffering this activity causes. The US-based bank, which employs 6,000 in London, often behaves as if it has a divine right to interfere in the politics of countries where it operates. The bank's arrogance is buoyed by the fact that its alumni hold many of the top global financial jobs. I mean, I won't go on, but... Um, I think the important point to bear, bear in mind in here of is, of course, one can criticise Soros and, of course, one can criticise uh, Goldman Sachs, but you have to be very, very careful, I think, of the language uh, in which you do that. And any criticism of Goldman Sachs, which 
would suggest that it behaved appallingly in the financial world because it's Jewish would absolutely be anti-Semitic. And any criticism of Goldman Sachs which didn't take into account the behaviour of other non-Jewish financial institutions also, I think, would stand accused of anti-Semitism. So I think people like, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the Telegraph writers are, are foolish when they u- utilise this kind of language and rather naive to be surprised when some people turn around and accuse them of, of anti-Semitism. Language isn't neutral. Thanks very much there, Julian. Brendan, do you want to take up? Thanks, Jacob. Um, one of the most striking things, I think, about the, the woke new left or, or the Corbynista left is that they see racism everywhere except in relation to Jewish people. So these are the kind of people who, if, if Katy Perry wears her hair in cornrows or dreadlocks, they will start talking about white supremacy. I mean, they will literally use the words white supremacy to describe that kind of celebrity hairstyle. If Jamie Oliver makes jerk rice... You know, uh, Dawn Butler, the Labour MP, will have a meltdown and start banging on about cultural theft and give rise to this big discussion about, you know, the new racist co-option of, of food. Uh, and then as, as for Islam, virtually every criticism of Islam is now chalked up to racism. Everything is Islamophobic. You just have to witness the fury that greeted Boris Johnson's jokes about women who wear the niqab or burqa. You would think he was Goebbels from the way in which he was being described, the way in which he was being talked about. You know, basically, if, if you don't curtsy to every woman wearing a niqab, you're a racist. They see racism in every form of discussion and every um, critique except when it comes to Jewish people. Uh, When it comes to Jewish people, it's an entirely different story. So someone can paint a mural in East London showing hook-nosed men trampling all over mankind, and these same people will say, oh, that's a nice painting. Uh, Or, you know, Jeremy Corbyn will go on Facebook and say, that's a really nice mural, I can't believe they're taking it down. Or more seriously... There can be a firebombing of a synagogue and some people will say, well, you know, we don't know if it's right. Let's not jump to conclusions here. Uh, So in Germany in 2014, a synagogue was firebombed and green activists and others insisted it wasn't an anti-Semitic act. They said it was a statement about Israel's actions in Gaza. And in 2017, a court agreed with them. And a court ruled it was not an anti-Semitic hate crime. It was an act of politicised arson. Even more strikingly than that, Jews can be massacred in public and some people will say, well, you know, we don't know the whole story. It could be quite complicated. So after the Charlie Hebdo massacre, when four Jews were murdered at uh, Delhi uh, in Paris, um, we had Karen Armstrong, the religious correspondent, saying this wasn't about anti-Semitism, this was a statement about Israel and its behaviour in Palestine. Everyone else, meanwhile, on the, on the, in the kind of left media, was really worried that there would be a backlash against Muslims as a consequence of the Charlie Hebdo massacre and uh, the Delhi massacre. They were worried about an Islamophobic backlash. So even when there is racist violence against Jews, some people think to themselves, oh, no, I hope the Muslims are okay. I mean, that's their instant response to this kind of uh, behaviour. So we have this situation where the very same people who are myopically obsessed with racism and who see it in every film, every innocent conversational question, every celebrity's hairstyle, never seem to notice racism when it comes to Jewish 
people. They go through life wearing these uh, super sensitive racial goggles. Uh, and they always seem to stop working when it comes to uh, racist hatred of Jewish people. They see racism where it clearly doesn't exist in you know, very innocent cultural things, for example, and then they cannot see it where it very clearly does exist. Racist caricatures of Jewish people, attacks on synagogues, even racist violence against uh, Jews. And this is such an alarming disparity. It's such a huge gap that I think it does need some serious explanation and interrogation. I think it tells us a lot about both racism and anti-racism today. I think in relation to anti-racism, it really confirms that among this new left, this uh, woke left or Corbynista left or whatever the hell we want to call it, call it, it really tells us that anti-racism is no longer a serious progressive pursuit. Uh, if it was, you might expect that they would notice and possibly even organize against the rise of uh, anti-Semitic hatred and violence in Europe over the past decade. Instead, anti-racism has increasingly become about social control, linguistic policing, the policing of attitudes, the policing of interpersonal relationships, all of which is now done under uh, the, the banner of uh, managing relations between races. So anti-racism increasingly takes this very censorious form uh, and is, uh, racism is seen everywhere and clamped down on everywhere, not because it actually exists in those examples, but because anti-racism has become one of the key means through which uh, the new politically correct establishment maintains its authority over how people talk, how people behave, and how people interact. And then in relation to racism, I think it tells us something important as well, which is that because anti-racism now lends itself to that uh, social control enterprise, racism can still flourish in various different ways and not always be noticed or commented on or opposed. And I think that's particularly true in relation to Jewish people. I think there are three contributors to the new anti-Semitism. I think the first, as we've heard from some of the other speakers, is the, the degenerate state of the left and its descent from wanting to analyze and challenge uh, the structures of society to having this conspiracy theory view that society is puppeteered and controlled by small, faceless uh, groups of very rich people. And the more they go down that route, the more likely they are to end up pointing the finger of blame for everything at Jews, Jewish bankers, Jewish people, powerful Jews in the media. Uh, so the degenerate left, I think, is the first contributor. I think the second key contributor, and the controversial one, which people don't like to talk about, is the recent arrival of huge numbers of Muslim migrants from parts of the world where anti-Semitism is more established than it might be in Europe. Um, and you can't talk about this because apparently it's Islamophobic to talk about anti-Semitism and people will say, oh, you're picking on these new arrivals, you're picking on these people. Um, but I think uh, the acquiescence of the identitarian left to um, certain immigrants' attitudes and to certain immigrants' viewpoints really does create a tinderbox of prejudice which is never confronted, never spoken about, never challenged, and that means it can explode in acts of violence and so on. And then the final contributory factor, and I think probably the most important one, which Melanie has touched upon, is identity politics, the cult of the victim. And what that ends up doing is not simply failing to notice attacks on Jews and racist caricatures of Jews, but actually sanctioning those things. Because if you go through life with a view of politics and society in this kind of 
um, under the eccentric ideology of privilege where all, all these different racial groups and one is powerful and one is less powerful and they must be managed and policed, then not only will you end up uh, having too much sympathy for certain groups, but you'll end up being hostile to other groups. And I think Jews are primarily suffering today under not old-style far-right anti-Semitism, but a new supposedly left identitarian anti-Semitism that sees them as too privileged, too arrogant, and needing to be taken down a peg or two. Okay, lots of points there to pick up on, but I'm going to come straight out to you guys. So if you could... Hi. Um, there were two things I wanted to raise. Um, one is the way in which I think the present prevalence of anti-Semitism in British society has been manipulated by foreign mischief makers, and I'm talking about disinformation trolls, Russian and Iranian in particular, because that's really important and it's very rarely acknowledged. Um, these trolls are not interested so much in any end goal, but what they want to do is to provoke dissent, mistrust in institutions, infighting, and people in conflict with each other, and I think we should take that very seriously. I've been looking at some of these trolls. One of them had a Russian email address. That's a bit of a giveaway, I think. Uh, and that troll was a particular Holocaust denier of a very nasty character. Um, the other thing I think that perhaps we should be thinking about is um, the way in which some really loopy people, like David Icke, whom you should take very seriously. Icke is dangerous. He's a nasty fascist. And his rhetoric and his baleful conception of the Jews as he's single-handedly revived the 19th century protocols of the elders of Zion. He has single-handedly revived the medieval blood libel against the Jews. And we should take him seriously. And I think we should be looking at the way in which his baleful rhetoric has influenced both left and right. Um, I don't think it's an accident that all sorts of superficially very, very reputable people, like Mike Mansfield, president of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, appears on the Richie Allen Show, burbling about dark forces. And, I mean, the Richie Allen Show is, is connected with Ike and has got every single utterly spittlefleck ranting anti-Semite you could possibly imagine popping up there regularly, uh, as long uh, uh, lots of other crazies as well. But and the idea is that we are being subjected to this weird influence and we need to be interrogating it more and asking more about the origins of this, where it's coming from, who's got an interest in promoting it uh, and I think that the circle of influence is possibly wider than we realise. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, chap over there and could we... Hello. Yeah, I was, it's sort of an observation and a bit of a question. Uh, I think uh, with the left and the victim culture, they've sort of uh, taken control of a lot of the labels like racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe, so on and such forth. I think with anti-Semitism, it's one that they've sort of forgot about. They've forgot to claim that one, and now that all the tactics have been turned back on them, uh, they've seen a lot of the same tactics that they've put on the right, put on themselves, like the caricatures and that sort of thing. I just think... Uh, is it a mistake that they've forgot to claim that label and they've not thrown it back at the right? Brilliant. And you have a hit. Hi. Um, it seemed like a common theme running through the discussion was this idea that there's um, kind of a double standard in terms of who gets to be a victim and who doesn't. So I was just wondering if anyone from the panel wanted to comment on this idea that racism equals prejudice plus power, because that's something I hear a lot on the left. And I think one reason that it seems that cases of anti-Semitism are sometimes ignored is because there's this perception that because of Jewish people's involvement in business in Hollywood that they can't at once be oppressor and victim. And does this kind of example show how problematic it is looking at things through the lens of victimhood only? Um, as someone who identifies as a skeptic and someone who does not want to believe anecdotal evidence because I know that it's not really the correct way to form knowledge, my question is kind of, 
do any of you actually have any statistics that support the idea that the left might have an anti-Semitism problem? Because I haven't actually heard any that support it yet. I've heard anecdotal evidence, but I've not heard any statistics, I'm afraid. I was wondering if the, the panel draws a, um, a parallel um, between the anti-Semitism of the new left, which is linked to its identitarian politics, and the way in which elements of the left, which are not necessarily anti-Semitic, are also engaging in collective demonization. So, for example, we get neo-feminists talking about there being a white uh, male patriarchy. And it seems to me that the people who are objecting to the new type of anti-Semitism, quite rightly, should also be objecting to other forms of collective demonization. Second point I want to make very briefly concerns George Soros. I mean, it was utter nonsense what we heard from the two speakers who objected to people making quite valid criticisms of somebody interfering in the British political process. The people who are making those objections are not motivated by anti-Semitism. You couldn't provide any evidence that they were. What they are objecting to, rightly or wrongly, depending on your subjective opinion, is somebody using millions of pounds to try to reverse a democratic uh, electoral result in this country. Um, it's irrelevant whether he has a Jewish background or a Buddhist background. Brilliant. We're going to come back to the panel now, but then keep your hands ready. Um, Richard, are you growling with the mention of Soros just now? Uh, could you come back well, very quickly <laughs> on that? One, I think that's um, untrue. Firstly, why can't he? Plenty of rich people use their money to influence... No, 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 it's not, right? George Soros is singled out. He's singled out. Why is his obfuscation? Can we... I am not. I am not. Can we just answer this question, Richard? I've been asked to be on this panel. You haven't. And you've already abused one, one member of, of the panel. So the, lots of people can do, do that, and lots of people do do that. George Soros is, singly, is singled out time and time again by people. And when he is then put into graphics about him controlling another individual in the same kind of way we've seen throughout history that powerful or rich elite Jews have controlled or manipulated other powerful institutions, that is, I think, just racist and wrong. You know, the idea that Tony Blair is being manipulated to be a, a pro-European, this is ridiculous. Like, he joined the Labour Party when it was unpopular to be pro-European. You know, that was arguably one of the reasons why his premiership annoyed a lot of people, is he let lots of Europeans into the country. Like, this is ridiculous. It is just out-and-out out racism, and if you can't call it out, you're part of the problem. Brilliant. Thanks, Richard. Stephen, um, would you like to pick up on one of these points, either the Soros point or perhaps the point made by the lady at the back about whether we do need you know, statistical evidence to you know, back up this thesis? Yes. The left well, <clears throat> so my, um, my initial point was that the case for there being more anti-Semitism in Labour than in the population at large has been based entirely on a handful of highly emotive cases. And that is terrible evidence. And if I were to use that to justify to you my belief, if I had it, that women are terrible drivers, you know, if I were to wheel out a, a bunch of anecdotes that made you angry and got you worked up, and you yeah, oh, yeah, the women are terrible drivers, drivers you, you would, I would hope that you would see through that and think for a minute about what the actual evidence really is. Now, what is the actual evidence regarding levels of anti-Semitism in Labour? We have seen, I cited, a number of studies 
I, including one from the Institute of Jewish Research, which was very clear that there's no more anti-Semitism on the left. There was the all-parliamentary inquiry that concluded that there is no more anti-Semitism on the left. There was an undercover Channel 4 dispatches programme that went, tried to find anti-Semitism and other problems in momentum, found nothing whatsoever. The Chakra Party report looked at anti-Semitism in Labour, found no more anti-Semitism on the left. That's the hard evidence. Just think about the evidence that you have been given today for there being more anti-Semitism in Labour than in the population generally, it's just been a bunch of emotive anecdotes. That's it, right? Just think, hasn't the penny dropped yet, right? They're not providing you with any hard evidence to back up their assertion that Labour is riddled with anti-Semitism. Where's the evidence? No, no Richard, we'll come to you in a bit. Um, Melanie, do you want to come back on that at all? Or, apparent, I mean, or, or the point up here, actually, that can we view anti-Semitism within a sphere of racism? Just pick one of those and... Take about 30 seconds. <laughs> um, Anti-Semitism is uh, not confined to the left. Um, uh, the shocking thing about anti-Semitism on the left is that the left is supposed to be anti-racist. The left is supposed to stand up for... Um, uh, stand up against such gross abuses of power as racism and anti-Semitism. Um, and um, in my view, uh, it's a much more serious problem than it is on the non-left because the left is in such a position of cultural power uh, in the universities, in culture, in the media, and so on and so forth. I mean, just speaking from my own personal experience, I mean, I'm, I have to say I'm a, I'm a little irritated by the whole way in which this whole discussion has kind of erupted, or I understand why, because it's you know, Jeremy Corbyn's own inability to deal with it which has caused the problem. But, you know, the first time I personally was accused of not being properly British because I had stuck up for the state of Israel against what I perceived to be prejudiced comment. And at that stage, I'd never been to Israel in my life and never wanted to go. Um, uh, that was in 1982. And that was on the left. And they, the way they justified what they were saying was to me deeply shocking. It wasn't simply that they were anti-Israel. Because I had stood up for it, I was not properly British. And that is now something which has come kind of full circle. We're hearing people are outraged that this has come out from Jeremy Corbyn. Well, what took people so long? And, you know, this, this argument about statistical evidence is, is, is really quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, is any other kind of prejudice required to produce statistical evidence to prove it exists? I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not, you know, this, this dismissal of anecdotal evidence. Well, excuse me, we are real people living in real situations, having real experiences. And to have that dismissed as merely anecdotal and therefore of no consequence is to dismiss the real lived experience of gross and vile prejudice. And that is unconscionable in my view. The okay, point about... We'll, no, no, we'll come, oh. back, we'll come back later. Oh, Thanks fine. for that. Okay. Um, Brendan, do you want to come back? Or perhaps you might want to come back on this point that was made about David Icke. And whether we should be, I mean, is, is it people talking about anti-Semitism that is making people anti-Semitic? Um, um, well, I, I, firstly, I agree with Melanie that you, that question, where's the evidence? I've never heard that said to Muslims who stand up and say there's loads of Islamophobia. Never heard it said to black people. So that question in itself is just fascinating, I think. And I see it a lot in these discussions. Where's the evidence? It's just anecdotes. Um, and there, again, I think it does speak to a double standard. In relation to... Ike and Soros and some of those things. The Soros thing, I mean, come on. Uh, do some anti-Semites hate Soros? Of course. 
Do some racist people hate Gina Miller? Of course. But the idea that the criticism of Soros and Gina Miller and Tony Blair and others might be motivated by, is all motivated by prejudice and racism, is just ridiculous. And this is where it does actually become a problem, where um, accusations of anti-Semitism are used to a political service. And that's a real issue, I think, because that weakens the argument against anti-Semitism by uh, convincing people that it has become a cynical enterprise. Uh, Soros isn't singled out. If, if anyone's singled out, it's Gina Miller. And no doubt we'll be told that's because we're racist. So this is what people say about Brexit voters all the time. Um, but the, the, one, just on from that very briefly, the, one of the big problems with this whole discussion is the way it's become collapsed into the question of the future of the Labour Party. And you have these two factions, one saying you're really anti-Semitic, and the other saying, no, we're not. Um, to those of us who don't particularly care about the future of the Labour Party and have never voted Labour and, and never will so long as we live, I'm one of those people, um, that's incredibly frustrating because we think that this problem of left anti-Semitism, as Melanie says, it's been around for a long time, is a serious problem, has deep cultural roots, has been going on for a long time and tells us something very important about the state of politics and the state of society today and about the role of identity politics. So it's collapsing into this interminal clash between Corbynistas and Blairites, or whatever they're called these days, is a serious distraction, I think, from grappling with the depth of the, this problem. Brilliant. Julian, do you want to come back on that? Just on the, the, the Soros point, I mean, I was talking about unthinking anti-Semitism, and I specifically said that I didn't think Nick Timothy was, was an anti-Semite. But you've only got to go and look on the myriad of far-right and crazy... <laughs> Uh, websites around the world to see all these cartoons of Soros as an octopus. And indeed, the lady down the front mentioned David Icke. There's one um, cartoon that was actually um, appeared on an Israeli website from the son of Benjamin Netanyahu about this. And there, uh, Soros has been joined by one of the uh, giant green lizards. Uh, from from David Icke's uh, demonology. I mean, this stuff does shade off into complete craziness, uh, in, in in my view. And look at go go and look at websites like Pepsis and the like. I mean, I would regard myself as somebody who's critical of of, of capitalism, but not because it's Jewish, um, but for other reasons. But there is some crazy stuff out there emanating from different points of the of the political spectrum. And I do think that Labour has been I would say unfairly singled out. It, it, it certainly exists. I would not uh, dispute that for one minute. But there's a hell of a lot worse out there. I'm, sh I'm shocked and devastated by, and I'm not, I'm not Jewish by some of the stuff which I've encountered just researching for this these few words. Okay, we're going to come out for more questions. Keep your hands up. Just a reminder: can we keep our points relatively brief? I'm trying to work this debate out. I'm trying to think out loud. And uh, I listened to Richard come back at the fellow behind me on the Soros thing and says, if you can't call it out, you're part of the problem. So he's shut down. He can't speak. He's not part of the problem. He's effectively an anti-Semite. And then as for Melanie, I just get lost in your narrative, completely lost in it. And I was genuinely perplexed. And what I gathered from that was, if you make any criticism of Israel, you're an anti-Semite. And then I go to you, Brendan. Brendan is a good comrade and friend, and I know you well. I don't see you often. But this is the one issue I'm not convinced about. And I think that when you make your three points, Brendan, 
there's elements of absolute definite truth in each one of those three points that you identify. But why is it that I get the feeling that we're putting two and two to make five? And what, what I mean by that is there's no doubt that there are the people of the, le the left has degenerated. And I also like the stuff that you write in Spike. Would you say, why do they focus on Israel? What about Saudi Arabia? What about all those other tyrannical regimes? You're absolutely right. But I, I think there's a real danger here that there is a lot of people, guess what, who don't like Israel because of its treatment of the Palestinians. They think it's a bastard state, an illegitimate state, just like some people think the six countries of the north of Ireland is an illegitimate bastard state. They might be old-fashioned stuck in the past, but that's what they think. So what I'm trying to work out here is, is there a danger, Brendan? And what you're saying, that you're spreading the canvas too wide to catch everyone in it, a lot of well-intentioned people, even though I do accept there are elements of a problem here, I I'm just not sure if, it's not even that you're <coughs> using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, that would be crude on my part to say that, but I think something's getting lost in this discussion. Okay, and the woman with the microphone. So, so I totally accept Brendan's point that there's a double standard here in requesting evidence in this case, but not in Islamophobia or not in the racism that we're told, an epidemic of racism every day. But some of us have been very consistent over many years in demanding evidence. I want evidence for the gender gap. I am desperate. I'm reading huge things. What is the gender gap? I'm desperate for evidence of, of rampant sexual harassment in every office, of an epidemic epidemic of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. I just want evidence. Of course it's true that there are some members of the Labour Party who are anti-Semites. That is patently true. Um, but it's legitimate to ask if there is evidence of what we're being told in the media every day that there is more racism in the Labour Party. And I want to ask you all, are we so against evidence now that we dismiss evidence? So what do you think of the three or four studies that were done, attempts to investigate. Do we agree with attempts to investigate whether there is rampant anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? Or should we have not have done it? Let's not investigate them. Having investigated them, do you accept them or do you dismiss them all? Hello. <clears throat> so there is no official leader of women worldwide or in the UK. There is an official leader of the Labour Party. His name is Jeremy Corbyn. There is no official party office for women. There is an official party for the Labour. There is a party office for the Labour Party. And I want to say that anecdotes about the leader of the Labour Party or about the office of the Labour Party, such as we heard from you, cannot be compared to just a random anecdote of a woman driving badly. These are the official party machine. If these are broken, it matters far more than some random person on the ground, whether that's a woman who's badly driving or just somebody who votes Tory but has no official office. Okay, and the woman next to her, but this chap here. Hi, I get, the, I get the general point, the empirical question about anecdotal evidence versus uh, uh, st hardcore statistical data. The problem is here is that the comparison with women drivers is not particularly a good one. Because what we're not looking at is this question of anti-Semitism uh, uh, anti on the left in general, or even in the 550,000 members of the Labour Party as, as a total. The question comes down to is anti-Semitism in the Labour Party right from the top down? What proportion of the people who are councillors, what proportion of the people who are active in the central committees are, are these complaints being made about? What proportion of activists or momentum are it being complained about? It's no good talking about the 550,000 people if 450,000 of them or more of them are just, you know, silent members who paid three quid when the other 100,000 are active on 
on Twitter and, uh, and attacking them. So what you've really got to look at is the activists, the councillors, all the central com party committees and, and all the rest of it. And that's where the accusations are being made. That's where the anecdotes are. Anecdotes are. The uh, women drivers are not the same because you don't have a senior woman driver and a less senior women driver. You don't have a council member of a, of a, of a women driver. Brilliant. And then the gentleman two rows in front of you. And then start over here. Yeah, so just on this um, question of uh, evidence. So uh, reports, against anti reports of anti-Semitism in the UK are up 34% in a year. So that's evidence of anti-Semitism in the whole of the country. And when you've got all of these reports on anti-Semitism in the left, obviously it's going to be reinforcing this idea that anti-Semitism is an acceptable form of uh, racism. Uh, if you go along to a CLP uh, up and down the country, you have so many activists. In these I know this is more anecdotal evidence, but... Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen a study on this, and I'd like to see a study on this. But if you go to these CLPs, oh, I'm so sorry. you have I'm got... I'm laughing at the fact that it's anecdotal. Chaps, a woman is speaking. You're, I know you're... I know you, guys, I know you're important, you're both on the stage, but let's let this woman speak, and then we'll come back to you. So. In CLPs, you've got people who are... Um, incredibly anti-Semitic. You've got huge numbers of the Jewish community leaving the Labour Party in masses. Uh, I know this is potentially more anecdotal evidence, but it's true. And you don't... What about the McPherson principle? You don't have this for other minorities. Yeah. OK, so the person with the mic here, and then could we bring this... <clears throat> yes, yeah. I think um, that uh, the... Uh, you know, we live in very uncertain times. People are looking for certainty. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that the political activists uh, have, are more prone to demonisation. They, they're looking for sort of symbols in which they, you know, they, they, people can attach themselves to. If you look at the uh, speech that Corbyn gave at the Labour Party conference and, and the reaction of uh, uh, the, the people in the audience who are, are political activists, um, to me, it, it stood out. There were three... Uh, sort of great demons for, 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 for that audience. One is Israel, uh, everyone waving Palestinian flags. Uh, the next is Brexit, with their campaign for uh, a second referendum to overturn the vote. And the third one, which got a cheer, was uh, attacking Hungary. And I think there's, there's something linking all three in, in, in the minds of those people, which is that all three things stand for national self-determination, which is you know, what they uh, ha are, are demonising. The responsibility, uh, the, the issue with it, um, Brexit is racist, Hungary is fascist, um, and uh, Israel is, is well, we, we, we've already seen they're trying to paint it as an apartheid state, look, looking back to uh, South Africa uh, and, and apartheid. Very quickly. So... The responsibility lies with Corbyn and, and the people that have, have pushed that narrative. Really, I don't want to go through history, it goes back to 1979, the Iranian Revolution, the rise of political Islam, which none of these people will take into account. And, and that, you know, that is, in a way, the big elephant in the room, which, which uh, nobody discusses, but that's, that's what's behind it, not being able to challenge uh, that idea. Okay, Brian, I'm going to come back to the panel now, and I'm going to give everyone just one minute to come back to a few of those points. Melanie, I'd like you to start. Um, perhaps you'd like to come back to this point here that is all criticism of Israel anti-Semitic? No, of course not. Um, and that's precisely the point that I made, um, that criticism of Israel, just like criticism of any other country, is of course not anti-Semitic. It's entirely legitimate. Um, but the problem is, as I said in my remarks, 
and I'm sorry you were confused, but I did say it specifically, that the, that the, the attitude to Israel is not legitimate criticism. Legitimate criticism is rational. It's based on evidence. It's based on opinion, based on evidence, and we can have alternative opinions. But the attitude to Israel is based entirely on lies and falsehoods. You talk, for example, about Israeli treatment of the Palestinians, Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. There are plenty of people in Israel who object to Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. But broadly, it seems to me, people here have a picture of Israel's attitude to the Palestinians, which is maliciously falsified, presenting them as aggressors, when in fact they are defending themselves against attack. The attacks are never reported here. All that's reported is their military defense, um, and it's rep represented then falsely as aggression, as wanton child killing. If I were to tell you, which is a fact based on factual evidence, um, that Israel, uh, in its wars, in its military action, its rate of, uh, I think it's, it's, its rate of attrition, it's the, 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 the proportion of civilians killed in relation to the, 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 the number of, 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 um, of uh, armed fighters, activists, however you like to put them, um, is, uh, is infinitely lower, infinitely lower than the uh, ratio achieved by the British, American, or any other military in the world. And yet Israel alone is being accused of wanton and deliberate child killing. Now that to me is profound anti-Semitism. It reflects the ancient anti-Semitic canard that the Jews kill children, kill Gentile children. It taps directly into that. And it is not Very only false, then. it is the opposite of the truth. That's what I mean when I say that what is called criticism of Israel is not criticism in the sense that it is understood by any sensible or reasonable person. It is deranged, it is irrational, it is malevolent, it is wholly based on falsehoods from start to finish. Okay, Brendan, do you want to jump uh, in on this? Uh, yeah, th there's a really important reason why uh, people can ask for evidence until the cows come home on anti-Semitism, and it will be very difficult to provide that, because anti-Semitism is unique among racist hatreds in that it expresses itself in various different ways and often in a very underhand way. I think it was Julian who said earlier that in the post-war period, you couldn't be an open anti-Semite anymore, right, for various obvious reasons. You j it just wasn't the dumb thing. What's happened is that the anti-Semitic mindset, the anti-Semitic worldview, has moved and shaped and expresses itself in different ways now. Those people, uh, those bankers, uh, you know, uh, why do Jews always moan about suffering prejudice? There, there are various different ways, which, and it's not the old-fashioned, hook-nosed rulers of the world all the time. So uh, this is why anyone asking for numbers or anyone who's saying, well, there's only been a handful of actual explicit incidents of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party are really missing a very important trick here, which is that anti-Semitism now, for various historical reasons, expresses itself in, in a confused way. And one way that happens is via the issue of Israel and is that via the issue of anti-Zionism. Anti now, I think I would love to maintain a, a really clear distinction between people who hate Jews and people who oppose Israel. Unfortunately, that line is becoming ever more blurred, and it is in, it's becoming increasingly difficult to maintain that distinction. A lot of people do project those are the old anti-Semitic mindset 
on to Israel. So Israel is now the Jewish thing that controls world affairs. And polls in Europe show that many people think Israel has a, a pernicious influence on global affairs. Israel is now the Jewish thing that targets children and hates children. Israel is now the Jewish thing which has uh, this poisonous bloodlust. Uh, so all the things that were said about Jews are now said by some people about Israel. And that does make you wonder if this is anti-imperialism or more likely the, the anti-imperialism of fools, the kind of rehabilitation of the socialism of fools where uh, not the Jewish people as such, but certainly a, a significant section of the Jewish people are held responsible for the world's problems. So if you want to measure anti-Semitism, that's a difficult task because anti-Semitism expresses itself in a very confused way, uh, certainly in relation to other forms of racism. Julian, do you agree that you know, the problem that we have these days is we have a confused understanding of what anti-Semitism is? Is that the crux of the matter? I mean, I think the whole situation is incredibly confused, I, I, I have to say. It's confused in this country, and it's confused on, on, on the global level. Somebody mentioned, uh, or various people have mentioned Hungary in, in relation to, to Soros. So let me introduce an, another level of confusion here. So in the summer of 2017, Israel's ambassador to Hungary, uh, he did denounce the government's anti-Soros smear campaign, but he also insisted that Soros was a legitimate target for criticism and accused him of funding organisations that, I quote here, defame the Jewish state and seek to deny it the right to defend itself. So what's happened here is that because um, Soros has, has funded Human Rights Watch and because Human Rights Watch criticises some of what the Israelis have done in Palestine, there's a kind of weird uh, alliance developed here between someone like uh, Orban in Hungary and... Um, and uh, the, 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 the government in, in Israel. And Melanie's right about one thing, by the way, in, in, in my view. If um, people in this country knew just how fractured and fragmented things were in, in Israel, I say, I'm not Jewish, I hear this from my Jewish and Israeli friends, there is a huge uh, opposition in, in, in Israel to what people, to what the government is doing to, to the Palestinians. There's a great deal of criticism there. Well, you, you, you never hear about this. You hardly ever hear about it. I'm not saying this is a, a kind of plot on behalf of the BBC or ITV or the newspapers or whatever. Um, but it does, if, if you never hear very much about how criticism in Israel takes place against what's going on, you do start to think, well, they're all alike and they all support these terrible things that are happening. Stephen, do you want to come back on some of these points? I mean, you've been called out a few times on this comparing to women drivers, um, yeah. anecdotal evidence. You can either come back to that or to the point that Julian was just making. Well, um, I'd like to come back to the, the, the interesting point was made about the McPherson principle. That was you, wasn't it? Which is, um, which is an interesting uh, principle. So after the Stephen Lawrence uh, disaster... McPherson looked into racism and he came to the conclusion that we should always take very seriously allegations of racism when they are made by minorities. And that's absolutely right, that we really should do that. I'm fully on board. Um, but then sometimes that gets twisted into another principle, which is that they must be believed without question. And that principle can't possibly be correct because then we would have to accept, for example, that those Palestinians who claim that Israel is a racist state, racist against them as Palestinians, 
we would have to accept that they're correct and that Israel is a racist state. Now, you probably don't want to have to accept that. So, so the twisted, corrupted version um, of, of the McPherson principle, we, uh, we should reject. But we should obviously take very seriously allegations of racism when they arise, particularly from a minority like Jewish people. So I take that point on board. Um, very quickly. The, 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 the point about evidence, which people, you can, be, you can see that people are beginning to struggle now. They keep wheeling out emotive anecdotes, but when they're asked to provide harder evidence, there isn't any. And in fact, there's lots, lots of hard evidence measured in different ways, anti-Semitism measured in different ways on different metrics, lots of it suggesting that it's simply not true that there's more anti-Semitism on the left. And this, this was a study done by the Institute of Jewish Research. They used a very elastic, they deliberately used a very elastic definition of anti-Semitism in order to try and pick up the more subtle versions of it. They found no more on the left than anywhere else. So what now, about... I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna, so here's the Stephen, thing. Stephen, I'm going to push you on this. Are we because people are going to come back. I'm going to go out to the audience in a bit, and people yeah. are going to come back and say, they're going to point to the mural, they're going to point to Jeremy Corbyn they're laying briefs. The, the anecdotes, but the mural existed. So, I mean, uh, another... is, is it that the right also <coughs> has the same amount of anti-Semitism? The point or... is that we can all point to... So, so some of these cases will be real. There's real anti-Semitism in Labour and on the left, and you know, we can argue about these specific cases. No one's denying that there's anti-Semitism on the left. The narrative, however, is that there's much more on the left, and several people here have maintained that, and then when you ask them to justify that, they cannot, other than wheel out a handful of emotive anecdotes. Now, if they were defending the view <laughs> that women are terrible drivers or Jews are greedy, right, using just a handful of emotive anecdotes, you would be horrified <laughs> at that. But, that but, 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 but Brendan seems to be proud of the fact that he's just going with the anecdotal evidence in the teeth of all of the evidence to the contrary. There is actually hard evidence to support his view which he says no one's going to agree with, but actually I do agree with it, that there's actually more anti-Semitism amongst the Muslim population than, a, than in, in the general population. That study that I was referring to picked it up. So you could point to statistics to bet that would bear out that claim. You are correct that there is. But the same study shows that there's no more anti-Semitism on the left than in the general population. Okay, so no, no, okay, we're going to come... We're gonna, don't worry, you'll have your chance to say it. Richard, perhaps, do you want to come in on that point or another one? So another word for anecdote is testimony, and people are allowed to talk about their experiences when they've been victims. And if you take homophobia, I'm gay, the, uh, there was never any statistics about homophobia because the police were part of the problem. If you went out cottaging and you got uh, beaten up or, 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 or had stuff stolen from you out there, they prosecuted you for trying to have sex in a public place rather than the fact you're a victim of uh, a crime. You know, the institutions have been against there being any uh, facts for that, and because things are getting better for the LGBT community, and they palpably are, more people report the hate crimes that do exist, so the statistics are higher. So if you follow just statistics, there is more anti-homophobic hate, hate crime in this country now than there was in the 1950s. But that palpably, from all bases of our lived experience, is not true. So when Jewish people talk about the fact that they have been a Jewish counsellor for 20 years, but only in the last three years have they had a torrent of abuse um, for, for their Jewish identity, that is something that should make us aware. Uh, 
and, and, and to make us stand out. The second thing that goes alongside this, and the problem with these numbers, and I've looked at all the reports that you have talked about, and look, it's really welcome that there is not a disproportionate number of people on the left that are anti-Semitic than in the population. But the people who are anti-Semitic on the left are disproportionately powerful in the left now compared to where they were three years ago. And there is this talk about Jeremy Corbyn as a kind of first amongst equals. He is not. He is the leader of the Labour Party. He is our candidate for prime minister. He is the presumptive uh, winner of the next general election quite, uh, uh, at the moment, right? So he is a very important person. And when his very, very close allies, time and again, uh, show that they either um, support anti-Semitism or deny anti-Semitism or, or involve themselves in whataboutery about it and use their institutional power in the organisation to try and suppress a disputes committee process, to try and suppress the, the person or to go out and, per, and actively victimise the person who calls out anti-Semitism. That is part of the problem. And Brendan, you talked about this kind of, you know, the people who don't care about the internal bits of the Labour Party. I don't, I don't want this to be a factual issue in the Labour Party, but... Anti-Semitism has come across my desk from when I was uh, an activist in student politics and president and in the US and uh, my continued time. Uh, but it used to be that you know, I, I was on the majority and there was a minority where this happened and we were able to kind of isolate the problem. The numbers have been reversed. And the alternative from me calling it out is sitting silent. I refuse to be silent and part of the problem. Okay, we're going to come out for some last questions. I'm afraid not everyone's going to be able to speak. I'm going to make a personal plea for someone to try and take this discussion away from focusing on the Labour Party. I mentioned in my introduction that French school children are not able to go to school these days because they're being you know, subjected to anti-Semitic abuse. In France as well, a Holocaust survivor um, was burnt to death in a flat for being Jewish. So let's kind of um, try and broaden out this discussion a little bit to talk about anti-Semitism more broadly. I'm going to start here. Where's the other mic? Yeah, I've got okay. it. Okay. Yeah, there no, you go, uh, and then... I, I, there's two things. I'm sort of concerned about uh, the things that Brendan's saying, because I think there's something uh, that's been blurred, and I'm, I'm grappling with this. I, I, it almost feels like with identity politics, uh, sort of post-war period and where we've got to now, it feels like there's almost like a dialectic sort of moment that, that we're having this conversation about anti-Zionism, anti-Jewish sort of issues. And I, I, I completely agree there are issues that, that are happening and people are vi victims, genuine victims of difficult things, and that worries me. Uh, but I, I'm trying to s scratch under the question about evidence. Historically, when, when we talked about Palestine or Israel and, and the difficulties happening there, it was never really about a question of evidence. It was how, how in terms of politics and society, we can organise this uh, society better, even if it was miles away, or even if it was a north of Ireland, with some moral sensibility. So people have to have freedom of association. People have to have freedom of expression and be free from harm. And this is probably what, what we're discussing now, I think, but using the okay. example of what's been going on for the Jewish community. I've yeah, can I make my very quick point, uh, which very is quick. that a lot of you have been discussing the need for more empirical evidence and the fact that there's just, you're saying there's just anecdotal evidence, particularly directed at Stephen Law. Are you not aware of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism report from just one year ago, which showed that, uh, which analysed anti-Semitism among, amongst officials, not the general population at large, but just political officials at the top of every single party and it was found to be 61 percent in labor eight which is eight times more than any other party 
either you are not a very good academic because you don't know about it, or you've chosen to ignore that. Which is it? Okay, so... <coughs> yep. So, I don't know whether there's more anti-Semitism on the left. I remain unconvinced. But what I have noticed is that on the topic of believing testimony, it doesn't seem that people on the left believe testimony of Jews, uh, but they will believe testimony of other people without any kind of evidence. There is definitely a double standard there. And... Either you believe testimony without fault, which is obviously a ridiculous thing to do because some people lie, or you, or you disregard testimony, but you can't have it both ways. There is a double standard there. Okay, can you give it to the woman in front of you just there? And yes, and then yes. Sorry, yes. Me, me. Yeah, I think there are two debates going on so far and they need to be disentangled. One is the question of whether antiseptic is worse on the left, and I think Stephen's arguments about anecdotes are very good on that. I mean, the analogy with women drivers or whatever, that's just a good analogy if you're trying to establish it's worse on the left rather than that it exists on the left, which is the other issue. Of course it does. And I think the commentators, other commentators have a plausible hypothesis about why it exists on the left when it does exist, which could well be to do with power and victimhood and those things. So the two sides aren't exactly in opposition. They're talking about different things. What I think should be discussed, though, is the definition of anti-Semitism. Now, it hasn't arisen so far in this debate. The International Holocaust Memorial definition, I think, it was what Jeremy Corbyn was impressed on. Now, I think, you know, if you're Jewish, you're more likely to be in a position to detect anti-Semitism than if you're not. Just if you're black, you're more likely to detect anti-black racism if you're not. What I do think is disturbing, though, just conceptually, I mean, quite apart from the substantive issue, is what Stephen pointed to. I don't think it should be the job of uh, up to... I don't think we should just automatically accept the authority of any group discriminated against to dictate what exactly discrimination consists in. That applies to anti-Semitism, transgenderism, anti-homophobia, whatever it might be. It must be something more objective than that, whatever it is we're talking about. Okay, brilliant. With the mic, very quickly. Yeah, I think uh, there's a, a big free speech issue here um, because um, I agree that a lot of the analysis of Israel-Palestine conflict is utterly facile. And there's a very, very poor level of debate. And um, a lot of it is double standards, what aboutery. Um, but that, to me, says we need more debate. We just need to challenge that. What I was getting from Melanie, um, I may have picked this up wrong, but um, was that there are certain things that can't be said because they are just de facto anti-Semitic. Well, in that case, how do we have a debate? And um, I think this also does come back to the Labour Party issue. Actually, a lot of the um, issue was around whether there should be a speech code which actually defined what is anti-Semitic and therefore takes that out of the realm of debate and says it's just a no-go area. That is hugely um, dangerous for free speech. Okay, brilliant. This chap here, and then we bring it two rows forward to the woman there. Um, I'm concerned about anti-Semitism, both from the right and the left, but as someone who comes from a, a community or a place where people are mostly on the left, I sense it there, mostly. Um, I think it's kind of to do with narrative. It's um, this idea that, you know, uh, if you stand up for, um, or if you say that, uh, the gender pay gap, it's kind of like a fashionable thing to talk about, or there are, there are just issues that are fashionable, and people have opinions about Israel that they seem to make, and it just seems to be a fashionable opinion, uh, but they don't really know a lot about it. And I've been, I've been in rooms with good friends of mine who consider themselves liberal and progressive, and they've said things that are just blatantly anti-Semitic, and they didn't even realise because they just didn't know that what they were saying was really problematic, and I don't like using that word, but it really was. Yeah. And only when I pointed out to them and explained it to them did they understand how wrong it was. So I think people just don't realise that a lot of what they say is misinformed. 
Okay, brilliant. With the microphone here. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I think we've got a bit stuck on the whole is anti-Semitism only in the left. Um, it's fairly indisputable that anti-Semitism in general is on the rise. There's a number of uh, incidents that Brendan mentioned, like firebombing of a synagogue. Jews basically being murdered for being Jewish happens right now, today, in 2018. So the fact that is anti-Semitism a problem, which sometimes sounds like the subtext of when people ask for statistics and things, uh, the fact that it seems like they're questioning, is there a problem at all? There's definitely a problem. Um, I don't think the Labour Party is overrun with anti-Semitism, but that doesn't mean that I'm not hugely concerned that our potential Prime Minister can look at a blatantly anti-Semitic mural and not see it for anti-Semitism and can make a speech where he calls a Zionist who is British other, alien, not, not British. That's massively concerning. So whether Labour has a bigger problem than anyone else um, is really irrelevant. It needs to be talked about and needs to be dealt with and the fact that it's being dealt with so appallingly is a massive issue. Okay, brilliant. I'm going to come back to the panel now. Um, Stephen, you've got 30 seconds to pick up on any final points. 30 seconds. Oh, 30 seconds. Um, well, I'll just make a sort of general point. Um, yeah. uh, the campaign against anti-Semitism are just not academically credible. I mean, look them up. Um, we all have uh, a moral duty to be vigilant about racism and anti-Semitism. I think everyone is, to some extent, a bit racist. I'm probably a bit racist a bit anti-Semitic. There are various tropes and things that you know, easily slide into. We all need to be vigilant. We all need to be careful. Um, at the same time, we all have a duty, a moral duty, it seems to me, to be careful, calm, and not to shoot from the hip and fire off accusations on the basis of you know, fairly obviously flimsy or non-existent evidence, whether it's Islamophobia or anti-Semitism or whatever it might happen to be. You have a duty to be careful and think and look at the evidence, not just appeal to a bunch of anecdotes, emotive anecdotes, and then start shooting from the hip. Those who fire off those kind of accusations cavalierly, without taking care with the evidence, are disrespecting the memory of the millions who were slaughtered by real anti-Semitism during the Holocaust. They are oh. drawing our attention away from the real anti-Semites amongst us, and they're crying wolf, making it more likely that genuine reports of anti-Semitism will not be believed. And ironically, that actually puts Jews at more risk, not less risk. They're not going to like Very this, quickly. but that, that is the conclusion that I draw. Okay, Richard, News flash. 30 seconds, Richard. News flash. Holocaust, uh, uh, the Holocaust did not start with the gas chambers. It started with a whole series of actions that went before it that led to that horrific crime. And the fact that people, and it was the left at the time, that were unable to call out some of the anti-Semitism that was taking place, and many of it indulged it or, or found what about to excuse it, is why we ended up with six million people who died uh, in the gas chambers. And we have to remember... Uh, in this context, we still don't have the same number of Jews in the in the world now as we had pre the Second World War. The Jewish population has never recovered from uh, 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 from the Holocaust, and not only have they not recovered in pure numbers, the amount of people that we have lost to their families and and, and the kind of wealth of human knowledge that has gone from that, it is you know, the Holocaust was the most egregious crime. And to make those comparisons, I think is uh, deeply. Uh, I irresponsible. The, the point about definition, I think, is an important one. Very quickly. You don't have. You can't, I, I get that the victim can't always define that they are uh, that what they've been subject to is a uh, is, is a form of racism or discrimination when they're in that moment because we're subjective at that point. If you've just been beaten up and you want you, you feel it's because you were gay or Jewish, or, 
Well, maybe. You are, are particularly subjective. Out of that context, there must be opportunity, there must be fora for that community to define what their discrimination is, how it feels, and how it is experienced. And that is what Ira has done. This has not been a, a, a group of Jews the minute after there was a hate crime saying, this is now anti-Semitism. This was a considered process that people went through to look at anti-Semitism. It is globally uh, recognised. It's adopted by 130 councils in this country, the Scottish Parliament, the, the, the Welsh Assembly Government, uh, the Labour Party in 2016, but recently um, has been uh, appallingly uh, caveated. One last point. No, no, Richard, I'm very sorry. We're already overrun. I can't get that to him, Fred. Melanie, 30 seconds, please. Um, the argument about whether it's more on the left than anywhere else, I think, is irrelevant. I accept absolutely that it is um, everywhere, uh, but there is a particular problem on the left, because it is the, on the left which um, it is the left which has adopted Palestinianism as its motif, its signature motif of progressive thought, and Palestinianism drives the anti-Semitism before it. So while the Labour Party and people on the left are unable to accept the noxious nature of Palestinianism, they're going to continue to repeat this. I do accept that to be a victim group is not enough. I do accept absolutely that it's not right for a subjective view to take sway, that whatever a victim, a potential vict a putative victim says he has been victimized, it must be true. There have to be objective tests. I believe there are objective tests of anti-Semitism. I try to lay them out, and I think that they should be applied. Um, uh, you mentioned... Um, uh, anti-Semitism, oh yes, a, a lady said, um, if certain things are said to be anti-Semitic, we can't then have a debate. I think that's an extremely confused position. Uh, you wouldn't be saying the same thing by saying, let me, let, let me put it another, another way, would you say, if certain things are said to be racist, we can't have that debate? Are you really saying that we must have anti-Semitism in debate? Are you really saying we must have racism in debate? No, I suggest what you're saying is that the kind of things you've been hearing, in your view, are not anti-Semitism. And I think that is the problem, that is the confusion. Things that are anti-Semitism are not being accepted as anti-Semitism. And finally, you were trying to get us to speak about Europe. None of us have spoken about Europe. Europe is a completely different uh, order of magnitude of this problem. In Europe, Jews are frightened for their lives. They are being kidnapped, raped, murdered, abused constantly uh, in France, uh, in Sweden, and elsewhere, and that is largely being driven by Muslims, and that is something which somebody said here is unsayable, unsayable, but while we're saying that is unsayable, the people who are saying it's unsayable and the people who shout hate speech when this is mentioned are people, are people who, are, who are themselves conniving at the persecution and murder of Jews in the Very world. Quickly. Thanks, Melanie. Julian, final thoughts. Okay. Um, yeah, th there is a problem with uh, anti-Semitism in, in Labour, but there is much wider problems than that with anti-Semitism, both in the UK and, as Melanie has just said, uh, in the world. And I think we need to look at this on a global level. I, by the way, I would disagree strongly with what Melanie has just, just said. Yes, of course, Muslims uh, have some blame to share here. But if you look at the history of anti-Semitism in, in Europe from, from goodness knows when, and certainly up until the 1930s, 1940s, there were plenty of anti-Semites uh, in, in, in Europe. And in the countries that, that, that are now so problematic, like Hungary and Poland, you can't blame everything on, on the Nazis. You can certainly trace powerful anti-Semitism in, 
in those in those countries. So again, I think we need to. I think we need to understand history a lot more if we're going to get to grips with this. And the micro-politics of the Labour Party, although it does play a role in all of this, is, is something of a distraction in my view. Thank you. Brendan? Um, you know, for, for the past 15 years, since in the post-McPherson period, the left and others have argued we don't need objectivity when it comes to racism. We don't need proof. We really should rely on self-definition. So the McPherson report is a racist act is anything judged to be racist by the victim or, or an observer. Now, I think they were wrong to do that. I think that was anti-objective, anti-rational, anti-evidence. But what's striking is that they have completely and utterly abandoned that view over the past year when people started talking about anti-Semitism. Completely and utterly reversed it. Now we do need to be objective. Now we do need proof. Now we cannot have self-definition, uh, as we've seen in the Corbynista response to the international Holocaust definition of um, anti-Semitism. That's what is striking here. That utter transformation in how they talk about racism because their aim in this particular example of racism is not to prove it or to accept that it exists or to confront it but to disprove it to to challenge the idea that it's even there and that makes it just an impossible issue to get to grips with never mind to challenge and i just think calling these things emotive anecdotes is outrageous synagogues are burning down Jews have been burnt to death. Jews have been massacred as they've gone shopping. Uh, caricatures appear everywhere. Uh, a march in, in France against Israel ended with people singing Slaughter the Jews. This is happening on a widespread level. And uh, anti-Semitism is the only form of racism, racism that I have explicitly seen with my own eyes many times over the past decade. And I think if you just denounce that as emotive anecdotes, then you're part of that particular problem of having that instinct to disprove the existence of anti-Semitism rather than confronting it head on. Can we thank our panel?